You know, there are a lot of things that divide us in life. Um, I'll never forget years ago, I was, I was teaching for Coaches Outreach, an incredible ministry uh, that our old friend Tommy Maxwell started. It's a ministry to primarily high school coaches uh, in now in multiple states. Thousands of coaches are in weekly Bible studies through Coaches Outreach. But in the summers, they would do marriage retreats. And every summer for a number of years, I spoke to them. And one year, I'd really thought I'd done a great job. I was really excited about how they had received the messages and, and people were wanting to have lunch with Julie and me and talk about issues. And I was really feeling good about myself. And then one young couple that were sitting across the table, they were Texas coaches. And he looked at me and with this perplexed look said, you went to the University of Texas? I said, yeah. He said, that's strange because I like you. And I, it was one of those times when you think, did he, just, did he just say that? And it turns out he was a, from a big Aggie family. I think his uncle had played in the Junction Boys with Bear Bryant, and, and there was maroon blood gushing through his little tiny veins. And, and, and it was just shocking to me that he seriously, seriously seemed to decide whether he liked people based on what school they went to. And, and, and it just struck me as how many things we can divide over. In my years of pastoring grace, one of the things that I have felt most strongly about is that God had called me to create a community, have a part under, the, obviously, the power of the Spirit, but to, to join the Spirit in, in building a community that had unity across lines that divide us. So first of all, the obvious one is we are a multi-generational church, which means that we have our nurseries packed, and yet we have a traditional service, and we kept that traditional service out of desire to make those from older generations feel a part of the worship, and we have worked hard to do that really well. I wish, quite frankly, that the services weren't quite so divided generationally. I wish that more young people love traditional music and vice versa. But, but we did that because music is not worth dividing a church over. We, we felt that as long as the worship was honoring to God and the words were legitimate, the lyrics were appropriate, that we could join together as a church, and we've done that in many ways. Um, so that, so that we, for the most part, have been able to have many young families with the nurseries being packed and yet a congregation of older people as well. Last time I graphed it, it was shocking how level the generations are across grace, that, that we are pretty equally represented across the board. And obviously, there are other things that divide a church, uh, that uh, a lot has been said about the racial division in church that, uh, as so famously was said, the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. And, and while we have made only small strides in that area, it's still been something that we cared about so that we have multiple races represented on our staff. We've had multiple races involved in leadership, and it is our desire to continue to do that, not to be token, but to better represent the world in which we live. I've been a little sad lately, though. In the last few years, what's become evident is perhaps the greatest, most difficult divide in the body of Christ today is a political divide. That it, it's just really hard to be friends with the people that don't vote like you. It's just really hard to understand how someone couldn't vote the way you do. And, and while I've sought to create 
a culture that was accepting of different opinions as long as we were united under Christ, I found that to be the most challenging, even more than all of the others. And so it seemed appropriate that this Sunday when we came together to worship live again, which obviously didn't have God has a plan, to look at Psalm 133, which is a classic little psalm about unity of believers. The first verse describes unity in God's family and that it is good. It is a song of ascents, which means it is traditionally understood to be one of the psalms that the Israelites would sing, would celebrate as they went to up to Jerusalem for the three national celebrations. There are three sacred holidays in the Old Testament in which all of Israel was called to come together around Mount Zion, if you will, the Mount, Temple Mount, and worship in Jerusalem at a special time. So this would have been those psalms that was recited as a part of that worship. Uh, some, uh, most texts say it's a psalm of David, but there are texts and translations that do not, so we cannot be sure whether it's one of David's psalms or not. So that brings into question exactly what time state this was written for. But look at verse 1. How good and pleasant it is may be a form of speech, which means how really, really pleasant it is when Brothers live together in unity. I know the NIV latest version says God's people. Frankly, I think they blew it on that one. It it says brothers. The the NIV was trying to get around. It sounded like it only mattered for men. But by saying God's people, it took the family emphasis out of it. Notice that that the psalmist chose a word to emphasize family because the, the The believing community has historically been understood to be a family. In the nation of Israel, they were literally related by blood. They all were descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was a big family gathering when all of Israel came together. For the New Testament church, we are united by the blood of Christ. And according to the New Testament, when you come to faith in Christ, you become a member of a family, and that is of all people who worship and and serve our Lord and Savior Jesus. This has always been a powerful psalm in the body of Christ. Uh, Augustine said that this psalm inspired monasteries, that it was a result of this psalm that that of the clergy set aside some who would go and live in isolation together in seeking to live out the truth of this psalm. But if you read the Old Testament, you know that this is not an easy thing to accomplish. When you, you read the Old Testament, you find that the brothers didn't always live in such unity. Cain and Abel, at the very beginning, we have a case where yeah, brothers are so divided one is murdered. You have the, a lot quarreling with Abraham, Joseph's brothers, Joseph's brothers, not only hating him, but selling him off into slavery. Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses, David's children. Absalom turned against him, trying to murder him. Even the Lord's disciples were constantly bickering between them about who was the greatest. Paul and Barnabas argued over John Mark. Paul and Peter argued over eating with Gentiles. The reality is when you read even the Scriptures, you find that there is a continual pattern of struggling for unity among the believing community. Why is that? It is because sin by its very nature 
isolates relationships. And, and redemption by its very nature brings reconciliation. But, but, but because we continue to have that flesh, we struggle in relationships. God's intention is that the closer we come to God, by definition, the closer we merge with others who are coming to God. Years ago, I met with a couple who came to me, literally said, we've been married 13 years. We've been in counseling all 13 years. We found your name in the phone book at this church and thought, maybe we'll give you one shot. And if you can talk us into staying married, we will. But otherwise, we're getting a divorce. I got to tell you, he had a silly little grin on his face. He was so ready to get out of that marriage, and she was so angry with him. And they both confessed to be believers, though, and I, and as a result of God's wisdom, not my own, I said, can I just ask the two of you, they were separated at the time, could y'all just stop thinking about each other and give the next 30 days to pursuing your relationship with Christ? Is it asking too much that you just stop being mad and just focus on loving Jesus? And don't move back in together for 30 days. Don't talk to each other for 30 days. Just concentrate on loving Jesus. Within three weeks, they were lived, living together as man and wife and were united and healthy. Because see, when, when two people that are far apart come closer to one Savior, they by definition are coming closer to each other. It's God's intention that we continually be grow, growing together, not only with people in the body, but people outside. The first commandment is to love God uh, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And the more we live out that love, the more we experience relationship with other people. So, so when we're divided, when we aren't living in unity with others, it's because somebody is outside of God's will. It's because the flesh has caused division. Now, what divides us? There are a lot of things. Sometimes it's differences. We don't all agree. I don't think we're all supposed to agree. If we all agreed, we'd all go over the cliff together. There, there's, there's a place in which we need differences of opinion. I found that having friends that disagreed with me caused me to sharpen my opinion. Sometimes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shock you here, sometimes it's even caused me to change opinions. Isn't that crazy? I mean, sometimes I discovered, this is going to be hard for you to believe because after all, I'm a pastor. Sometimes I was wrong, and sometimes you might be too. I mean, the, the reality of being around other people and being sharpened, as the book of Proverbs says, one man sharpens another, uh, by those differences of opinion can be incredibly helpful. I found oftentimes we're divided by fears. Uh, we... We fear the difference of opinion because we fear the consequences of it. We're angered by things we've seen. There are all kinds of things that divide us. But in Scripture, God intends for us to be united. In verses 2 through the first part of verse 3, he gives two illustrations of unity in God's family. It is like a precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. Now, for us, that's, that is, couldn't be further from any reality we understand. 
But in Exodus 29, there are a description given of how the high priest and then subsequently other priests should be set apart for service as priest by anointing with oil. In fact, also in the book of Exodus, it goes to great detail about what those oils should be. And when you read the description, myrrh and other things, it was heavily scented, very expensive oil that would have been used to anoint Aaron and the other priests to set them aside for that unique role of, of mediating between God and God's people. They, they were facilitators of reconciliation between God and the people by living out the sacrificial system, which uh, was intended to illustrate what Jesus would do on the cross and, and obliterate the division caused by our sin. So, the description is given in Exodus 29 of this oil being poured down and, and the psalmist gets very literal about the oil dripping from his beard onto his collar of his robe. In other words, the oil was poured out upon him to set him apart. Verse 3, it's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Now, to truly appreciate that, you need to look at a, a map or go to Israel. Hermon is a beautiful mountain. It's, it's the highest peak in all of Israel, but it's way north. Jerusalem is much, 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 up to 200 miles, uh, depending on what you read, almost 200 miles apart. And so you read this and it says, it's as if the dew of Hermon were following on, falling on Zion. How, how would Hermon's dew fall on Zion? First, it, it implies the 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 dew of Mount Hermon was incredibly heavy, and consequently the forestation around Hermon is, is unusually lush. But falling on Zion, what does that mean? Tell you what I think. I think these two illustrations are designed to make a point about what draws Israel together. Uh, Israel was drawn together by its worship of Yahweh, God of Israel, on Mount Zion at the Temple Mount. And so the, the ordination and anointing of Aaron represented that, that unity of Old Testament covenant that drew the people of God together, whether they were Jewish or proselytes. They were all to come to Israel together being united because of their worship of the God of the, who created all things. And, and that brings refreshment on Israel as, as the dew of the outreaches in the north, I think implying the people of the north, come down from the north and up to Jerusalem to worship. Many believe that this psalm is actually written after the divided kingdom, and it, it is expressing the sadness that the people, people of Israel are no longer coming together to worship, but instead the northern kingdom was worshiping in Samaria in, in a place that Jesus himself said was not appropriate. But he, he's talking about, with these two illustrations, that this worship of God that occurs in Zion. And in the context of unity, he's telling his people is this is what brings us together. What brings us together in the Old Testament was coming to Jerusalem for the sacrificial system at the holy days to worship our God. That's what brings us together. And then in verse 3, he 
completes the psalm with the promise of blessing from unity. The blessings of unity in God's family for there. I think on Zion, when the people of Israel are together, there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. When, when the people of God come together because they have in common the worship of God, when our differences become insignificant compared to the unity we have in Christ, God brings blessing. And when we can't come together based on our relationship that we have in common with Christ, I think we sacrifice blessing. And, and I fear that the American church is reflecting the world around us that is so stunningly divided. Our political discourse is nasty and mean-spirited and divisive. Uh, it, you, you see it in so many areas of our lives. We've lost the ability to come and reason together. And I, I fear that that has entered the body of Christ way too much so, th so that we, we struggle in honoring other children of God just because they're children of God, made in the image of God, because Jesus died for them. If we can't honor someone that the God of the universe gave his son for, then we imply that somehow our standards are higher than God's. And that is beyond anything I can understand. Unity is a product of love. 1 Corinthians 13 uh, so much emphasis. Uh, yeah, it doesn't matter how, can I summarize 1 Corinthians 13 for you? doesn't matter how religious I am. If I don't have love, it's all a waste of time. Well, I was struck by a Wall Street Journal article of all places. Uh, on Tuesday, June 9th, Gerald Sieb wrote an article in the Capital Journal the title was Crisis, Crises Lay Bare, America's Deficit of Goodwill. Put simply, too many Americans have stopped giving the benefit of the doubt to those whom they disagree. Given the pandemic, given the racial division, given everything else, in an idealized world, he writes, these shocks might have pulled the country together. But instead, there's a growing tendency to see those whom you disagree as not merely wrong, but evil. There's a diminishing willingness to believe that the person on the other side of the debate, any debate, is well-intentioned. And this is one reason racial justice on the one hand and law and order on the other have come to be seen as opposing goals, much as stopping the spread of coronavirus by social distancing on the one hand and reopening the economy on the other hand came to be regarded as opposing goals. We're dividing on things that we all ought to be together on. A 2019 survey sponsored by the Brookings Institution for example, found that 82% of Republicans think the Democratic Party has been taken over by socialists, and on the other, 80% of Democrats think the Republican Party has been taken over by racists. How do we get along in that context? And obviously, we don't. 
Just over 40% of those in each party thought that the opposing party wasn't just worse for politics, but downright evil. Political dialogue that suggests that those who disagree with you are morally inferior invariably widens and deepens the divide, and that is exactly what we are seeing. We are a country that is horribly divided, and I must tell you, I see way too much of it in the body of Christ, and, and I have to confess, it really makes me mad because that's not what Christ intended. We, of all people, should be able to sit together and disagree because we are all a part of the family of God. We all have the blood of Christ spilled out on our behalf, and we all have the command to love our neighbor as ourselves. So why don't we? As I mentioned, I think sometimes there are legitimate differences, and we, we've come to fear those who disagree with us rather than give them the benefit of the doubt. I also fear that we've become very proud. If you do a survey of passages in the New Testament about unity in the body, at least four of them emphasize humility as required in order to have unity. Philippians chapter 2, obviously the famous passage about Jesus taking on the form of a servant in, even though he were God. Ephesians chapter 4 speaks of, when it speaks of one faith, one baptism, one Lord in that context calls out humility. Romans chapter 12, 1 Peter chapter 3, all four of those very significant passages about unity in the body specifically mention the requirement to be humble. Not condescending, not pretending to be tolerative, but instead a genuine humility that I can admire and respect you, and I can listen to you, and I can treat you with respect. Why? Why is this so important to you, Andy? Why does it matter that much? I mean, we can, we can just all go to a church where everyone's like us, and then it's fine. We, you know, we, everybody knows they're going to vote for the same people. Everybody likes the same music. Everybody has the same birthday. Whatever form of thoughts, you, a unity we can create that makes us feel good about ourselves, we can do that. Why, why isn't that enough? Why not just, just let the body of Christ divide up according to its natural affinity? By the way, we have done that. Can I point out to you that it, you can think of any denomination or church group, and you can tell me immediately what socioeconomic group they probably are a part of, what race they're probably a part of, how they probably vote. Uh, the reality is that we have over our history divided up in those affinity groups, and I think God has used it in some ways, but isn't there a place for the body of Christ to be significant enough, the blood of Christ to be weighty enough that we can come together in love and disagree with people? Doesn't, doesn't that power set aside all those other differences? Why is it so important? Well, first of all, because it's commanded. We're commanded to love. It's, it's, it's not optional. It's the second great commandment, and yet we have come to twist it, to love the neighbor whom you like and agree with as yourself. But those other neighbors that are a little different or may disagree or have a view that makes you uncomfortable, you don't have to love those people. I mean, you can pray for them if you have to, but, and you can be socially appropriate, but, but surely God doesn't mean that. I mean, really? It's commanded. 
And I know I've said this to you way too many times, but as long as I'm here, I'll keep saying it. It's important because the Lord gave the right to the world to judge whether we or he are real based on it. I mentioned to you many times uh, Francis Schaeffer's little book, The Mark of the Christian, which was originally a, a, just an appendix of the church at the end of the 20th century. He cites two passages, John 13, 35. By this will everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Francis Schaeffer made the point that the world has a right to look at you and me and say, I don't think you're really a Christian because you don't love each other very much. The, the world literally has a right to look at us and say, I don't think this stuff is real because, you know, look at you. And even more weighty, John 17, 21. In the high priestly prayer of Christ in the last week of his life, when he prayed the Father, he said, I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. In other words, we're, we're expected to have as our goal, our aspiration, the same kind of unity that exists in the triune God. That's one reason the Trinity is so important. It illustrates a, a diversity and unity that is ultimately what is called upon for us. Uh, God exists in Trinity because in Trinity he could love uh, among the persons in perfect unity. And he calls us to reflect that unity in the way we love each other. Jesus continues to say, and this one has kept me up at night in my lifetime, may they also be in us, so, that same unity, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus says to the Father, if, if we who call ourselves followers of Christ don't reflect unity, then the world has every right to question whether Jesus is really the Son of God. Because if, if we don't, you know, we talk about miracles and speaking in tongues and all kinds of stuff and the, and the miracles in the Old Testament and, and the New Testament, and they're all incredibly powerful. But the most significant miracle that God calls the New Testament church to is the miracle of self-sacrificing humble love for other believers. That we are called to demonstrate the sacrificial love of Christ, which he demonstrated on the cross, in the way that we love each other. And it is supposed to, uh, by Christ's command, supposed to be so significant and so powerful that it causes the world to sit up and say, you know, maybe Jesus is the Son of God, because look at them. And men and women, we, we have always fallen short of that, but I fear we've fallen more short of it now more than any time in my life. We, we have allowed the, the political realities and the communication by the media and our fears and everything else so capture us that, that we, we are afraid of loving people that disagree, who are different, and, and we're afraid that we might somehow have to give something up that we can't afford to give, and yet we claim to follow a Savior who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, so in the name of Christ every nation should bow. The reality is that when you embrace Jesus as your Savior, you embraced a lifestyle of humble, sacrificial love. 
Martin Luther King famously preached the I have a dream speech. And I'm not Martin Luther King. I'm not the orator he was. I'm not the leader he was. I'm not saying that anyway. But if I do have a dream for our church, it's for our church to be so powerfully controlled by the love of God that, that we are a living demonstration, a love that brought Jesus to the cross. And that creates a unity among our family that is so powerful that those who rub up against us will say, you know, maybe Jesus is God because of the way they love each other. Have you ever thought about what heaven's going to be like? I mean, there are going to be people in heaven that voted differently from you, that, that look differently from you, that like different kinds of music. Uh, there's going to be jazz, there's going to be hip-hop, there's going to be country and western, there's going to be classical, there's going to be Gregorian chants, there's going to be... There are going to be people... There are going to be Aggies and Sooners. I mean, there, there are going to be all kinds of miracles that occur in heaven because God is calling His people from all of the world, from all walks of life, uh, simply based on what Jesus did on the cross. And And... I just want us to reflect that now. How good and pleasant it is when the family of God lives together in unity. We are drawn together in the Old Testament by their worship on Zion. We are drawn together by the blood of Christ on the cross. And when we reflect that, when we live out that love, God brings, brings blessing. Please pray with me. Father, we confess that loving can sometimes be hard, especially people that are different. And all of us have been hurt. All of us have experienced the times when we loved as best we knew how and yet were rejected by people that we didn't understand. The reality is that as much as love is central to our faith, it's sometimes the hardest part of our faith to do. And yet your word consistently says that you desire that we reflect your love in the way we treat each other. And I pray, Lord, today that we would be a people that were deeply committed to reflecting that same love. And then in doing so, we bring honor to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.